Well, we may have thought that a power outage would prevent this sermon, but it hasn't. It's delayed it for three weeks, but it's not prevented it. And so we continue in this little series that we're doing again on our self-talk and on the need to recognize it, to deal with it, and to bring it in line with the truth of God's Word. We've covered a lot of ground already, and today our topic is have a word with yourself if you don't believe in God. I think they're all important, but this one is, I think, critically important. It's one of the most important aspects of self-talk is how we talk to ourselves about God. Uh, as we dive into this, uh, you're aware that um, uh, the office put together just a little compilation of these sermons into a, just a little booklet form, and we're making them available. We've got a few more that will be available, hopefully, uh, next Sunday or the week after that, and it's just a, a study guide to help us go through these uh, sermons and to help us remember uh, some of the things that God says in his word um, about self-talk. Uh, there's a, was a advertising campaign in the province. Um, I think it's still ongoing, actually. And it has in its tagline, tag most injuries in life are preventable. Have a word with yourself. It's a great, it's a great um, series of commercials. It puts people in various dangerous situations, and rather than running headlong like a bull into a china shop, it says, stop, talk to yourself. You can prevent yourself a lot of harm and hurt. I think it has incredible application to the Christian life as well. And I think I can say this, I would say most, most sins in life are preventable. Have a word with yourself. In other words, talk to yourself. Remind yourself of what it is is in front of you, of the temptation, of the test that you're facing. And rather than just jumping into it, stop. Have a word with yourself. You might prevent you and others a great deal of harm by that one little conversation. The psalmist says, I keep the Lord in my mind always. That is such an important Thing for you and I to do, to keep the Lord in our mind always. And it's the exact opposite of what the psalmist describes of the fool in Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What is it? Which is it? Telling ourselves that there is no God or keeping the Lord always in our mind? It has a profound impact on the way that you live your life by whether or not you tell yourself there is no God or you keep the Lord always in your mind. One of the things we looked at a number of weeks ago is one of the foundational truths to the sanctification or the changing or the correction or the corralling of our self-talk is to realize that God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself in numerous ways. It's not that he's left 
himself silent. It's not that we walk in this world and wonder, I wonder if there's a God. There is evidence for God in nature. There is evidence for God in the skies. There is evidence for God in our hearts. There is evidence of God in his word. There is evidence of God in Christ. God is real. And that changes everything. And the reality of God is one of the things that ought to inform our self-talk. But as we come to Psalm 14, one, and it's identical to Psalm 53, by the way, and it's, uh, I don't know why the psalm, psalm is repeated almost word by word twice in the scripture other than God is trying to make a point to us. He's trying to tell us this is important for you to think through. But in Psalm 14, one, and in Psalm 10, which we'll go back to, we get a look at the actions of the lifestyle, the self-talk of the person or the fool who tells himself that God does not exist. And what you say to yourself about God is one of the most important topics of self-conversation you will ever have with yourself. It matters, and it matters temporally, and it matters eternally. So David describes the self-talk of a fool. And what he does, I believe, is he, he makes a correlation between the actions of one and what is behind those actions. As we've been saying all along, that our actions come after our self-talk. If you want to change your actions, change your self-talk, not the other way around. And so David observes a person and what they're doing and how they're living. He says, of course, they're telling themselves there is no God. And we'll look at some of the ways that unfolds. This verse can be an offensive verse to some. I remember um, being accosted in the hallway a number of years ago by somebody who was offended that I would call them a fool or that the Bible would call them a fool if they didn't believe in God. Let me clarify that just a little bit. This is not so much when we, the Bible calls somebody a fool who says there is no God. It's not an intellectual statement. It's a moral statement. The Bible doesn't use the word fool to describe somebody who's intellectually deficient, but one who is morally or spiritually deficient. Because it is foolish to tell yourself there is no God because of the implications of that for your life. Atheism, or at least the, those that want to tell themselves that there is no God, is not new. It's been around since the creation of humankind. But the denial of the existence of God seems more and more prevalent today than it ever has been. It's a consequence of so many things. It's a consequence of churches losing the foundation of truth. It's a consequence of what has been taught in our schools and our universities for years and years and years now that there is no God, that we are the a consequence of, of evolution, that uh, scientific naturalism is the reality and the, the main driving philosophy, um, that there is no God that intervenes in this world, that we live in a closed universe, that there is no interruption, there is no um, uh, uh, involvement of any other being. We just are evolved human beings. Today, it might be more common to hear people say, the fool says in his heart, there is a God, rather than the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the Bible is clear. 
that no matter what might, one might say, the conversation of the foolish in their heart is there is no God. No God. No God for me. I don't need that in my life. I don't need that restriction or that guidance in my life. When you think about heart, when the fool says in his heart, it's a, it's a fairly broad biblical term. It's not just this thing that beats in us, this organ that we call the heart. It's not just even the place of emotions. My, you know, we, we think that, that our heart is where we love somebody out of our heart. The heart in the Bible is much more comprehensive than that. The heart in the Bible is the seat of our mind. It's the seat of our emotions and our will. It's the very center or core of our being. It's who we are. And so when the fool says in his heart, it, what he's saying is that in his very being, in the center of who he is, he's saying, there is no God. I don't think that way. I don't feel that way. I don't live that way. There is no God. In the Hebrew Bible, the, the main word for fool is made up of three consonants, N, B, and L. Uh, in the Hebrew language, um, vowels were added. Uh, until vowels were added, it was all just consonants. Uh, you can find a wonderful description of the fool in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And there's a man whose name has the consonants NBL. Does any of you know who that is? Nabal. If you want to read a story of a biblical fool, read 1 Samuel 25. At first glance, you would read it and you say, well, that guy's not a fool. How can you say that he's a fool? After all, he marries a beautiful and intelligent woman. He has got wealth, incredible wealth. He's got servants. He can throw a party like nobody else can throw a party. He's not dumb. He's, he's, he's smart. He's made good decisions. He's made wise decisions. He's a good businessman. How in the world would you call a man like Nabal a fool? I've often wondered in a new life, if I ever had to live life over again, I would want to be a fighter pilot. I'm intrigued by speed. I'm intrigued by the complexity of those machines. And if I could even do one up, I'd love to be an astronaut. They're really smart people, aren't they? They've got years and years and years of education. They're bright beyond imagination. And yet, in the days of the Soviet Union, the Russian astronaut, German Titov, reflected on the existence of God following his return from orbiting the world. And he made this observation as he was interviewed a short time later. Some people say there is a God out there. But in my travels around the earth all day long, I looked around and I didn't see him. I saw no God and I saw no angels. But one person quipped, of course, had Titov climbed out of his craft without his spacesuit on, he would have quickly met God. Again, it's a view, isn't it? It's a worldview. Do we believe in God or do we not believe in God? My point is that when the Bible uses the word fool, it is not describing intellect. It is describing morality. It's foolish to live your life as though there is no God. It's wisdom of the highest order to live your life knowing that God exists. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
despite considerable revelation of God everywhere, the fool removes all moral constraint in the way that he lives. At the very center of his being, in the depths of his soul, he rejects knowledge of God. He's a practical atheist, not necessarily an intellectual one, but he lives as though there is no God for whom he has to deal with. He orders his life as if there is no heaven or hell, no final judgment, no eternal judgment. Do you see how important it is then as we begin down this path to get it right about the existence of God? To speak truth to yourself about the existence of God. Psalm 10, I find, at least for me, is a commentary on Psalm 14.1. Psalm 10 exposes the self-talk of the one who tells themselves there is no God. He says, The wicked arrogantly thinks. In the pride of his face, in verse 4 of Psalm 10, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts, that's his self-talk, everything that he tells himself, everything that she thinks uh, in her head is there is no God. There's no justice. There's no judgment. There's nobody to answer to. I can live unaccountable. I can behave as I want. And it's, again, the external actions of this individual that reveal what they say to himself. Verse 4, I've already read it. In his scheming, he thinks there is no accountability. God does not exist. In his thoughts, there's no room for God. They seem to think that God is dead. Look at verse 13 of chapter 10. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart? There it is. That's the self-talk again. He's telling himself something to God. She's telling herself something to God. You will not call me to account. That's moral account. That is an account for my behaviors, account for my actions, account for my response to my parents, account for my response to my boss, account for, for, for how I think and the things that I do. The wicked... Think in their heads, there is no accountability since God does not exist. If there is no God, there is no morality, right? If there is no God, you can live how you want. If there is no God, there is no judgment. If there is no God, there is no standard by which we are to live our lives. And so they tell themselves, since there is no God, I am not accountable. Now, at the end of my life, or when I die. In his inner dialogue, He's telling himself he's not accountable. And how is that evident? By the way they live. They don't care about others. They don't care who they hurt. They don't care uh, about their neighbors. They don't fulfill the, the second half of the, of the Ten Commandments. It's a reality of our world, is it not you? Look at the world in which we live right now. There are just millions and millions of people who are living without any concern about giving an account of their lives to God. If the truth be known, that's where we all would like to go. We don't like authority. We, we don't like having to give account. We don't want somebody t- 
telling us what to do or where to go or how to live. We chafe against authority. We chafe against moral authority. We don't want people telling us what is right and wrong. We don't want God to tell us what is right and wrong. We want to live our lives anonymously. We don't want to give an account for what we do. And so when you tell yourself that there is no God and that God does not exist and that you are not accountable to him, then you walk down a path that will lead you into all kinds of sin. Sexual sin, lying, covetousness, idolatry, selfishness, impatience, anger. Big sins, big directions. What about the likes of Hitler and Joseph Stalin? I'm reading a book right now on Stalin. It's shocking. His proclaimed written his poetry of how he just absolutely outright says there is no God. And look at the consequences of that for the Soviet Union in the 1900s. Tens of millions of people slaughtered. What kind of self-talk produced the philosophies of Karl Marx or of Charles Darwin? What kind of inner thinking results in us throwing all caution to the wind? As one wrote, when the passions of man are set free in an empty universe, that is a, a universe without God, when, 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 when we can live without constraint or restraint, what's the result? Chaos. Pure chaos for ourselves and for everyone else. If our goal is to be autonomous, then we must either deny God's existence altogether or convince ourselves that he is too far beyond us to have any practical influence in our lives. How many moral challenges are you facing right now or have you faced this past week because at some point your conversation said, well, God doesn't see. I'm not accountable. Look at verse six of chapter 10. He says in his heart, there it is again. This is how he's talking to himself in his heart. He, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all the generations, I shall not meet adversity. What's he saying? He says, I'm invincible. Nothing gonna stand in my way. Nothing gonna stop me. It's just me, myself, and I. It's the survival of the fittest. I'm fit, I'm strong, I'm powerful, I'm rich. I'm influential, I'm invincible. So out of his heart flows evil speech and oppressive acts. You read Psalm 10 and you see the affliction and the oppression that's poured out on the weak by those who live as though they think they are invincible. Why such rampant evil? Why such arrogant behavior? Why so many dictators and drug lords? Why so many who traffic young women in sex? Why, why all this pleasure that's out there? Why the exploitation of the poor? I am untouchable. Who are you to stand in my way? There is no God to whom I will give an account. This is how Lamech thought. You can read about Lamech in Genesis, one of the earliest, earlier chapters of Genesis. He brags about killing a young man who had just struck him and wounded him. It's the 
the dialogue of invincibility. I'm more powerful. I'm stronger. He hurt me. I killed him. Most people today, I think, if you had conversations with them, and some even here might be shocked to hear this, but most people today would be surprised to hear that the root of their wickedness is their atheism. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in the existence of God, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, you will live according to your passions. Doesn't matter who you are. So he says to himself, I'm invincible. That's verse 11. More of his self-talk. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. <laughs> He's hidden his face. He will never see it. This is, a, this is a kind of mocking attitude to God. Because we sort of have this expectation, well, if I do something wrong, I'm going to get whacked right away, and therefore I know I've done something wrong, and I know one sees me, then we are kind of constrained. But if you do something wrong, and you, you kind of wait for an hour, nothing happens, and you wait for a day, and nothing happens, and you wait for a month, and nothing happens, and you wait for five years, and nobody finds out, and nothing happens, you kind of think, well, nobody's watching. Right? You, you tell yourselves that, oh, I got away with that. And as it relates to God, you might say to yourself, well, he can't see. <laughs> or he's, he's pretty busy. You know, he's, after all, he's got six billion people in the world. He can't watch them all at the same time, can he? He can't see what they're doing. He doesn't know what's going on in their lives. Psalm 36 is fascinating. I know what transgression says to the wicked. I know what sin says to the wicked. The, the wicked is the fool, the one who has denied God. It tells them, it whispers to them, he has no sense of the dread of God. In fact, the New Living Translation said, sin whispers to the wicked. There is no God. It's the self-talk that takes place. And so, you know, we, self-talk kind of can go something like this. Hmm. Seems... There's no consequences for my actions. Nothing happened. I guess I'm good to go. God doesn't seem to have done anything. Maybe that one slipped under the radar. Hmm, maybe God is powerless to act. Maybe, maybe it's all just smoke and mirrors. Maybe he's too busy or too distracted. And so he convinces himself by his self-talk that God doesn't see. I don't know if you've ever said that to yourself. I think I have. Who are you when no one's looking? What kind of spouse? What kind of employee? What kind of child? What kind of parent? Who are you when you think God is not looking? What do you do early in the morning? What do you do late at night? What do you do in the middle of the day? See, if our self-talk embraces this notion of anonymity, if we tell ourselves that nobody sees and nobody knows, it won't be long before our actions leak out and betray what we're saying to ourselves. 
So that's David's description of the fool. I'm invincible. I'm not accountable. But then we have God's assessment. Back in Psalm 14, we're, we're presented with a dichotomy in many respects, one that we've all had to work through and we all will have to continue to work through. And we gotta figure out which one is true. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then in verse two, it says, but God looks down from heaven on the children of men. Which is it? Is there no God or is there a God who looks down and watches us? It's about as stark a contrast as you can find. It can't be both. The first one is described by their actions and their behaviors. If you don't believe there's a God, this is what will flow out of your life. If you do believe there is a God, this is what will flow out in your life. God sees and observes. God is there. God's interested in his world. God is aware of every single human heart. The fool would say that there is no God, therefore I can live as I want. The Bible says no, create, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In a few weeks, I'm going to talk about our conscience. Our conscience is God's monitor. Our conscience is God's person in our heart to act as a witness before him. No creature is hidden from his sight, but we're naked and exposed. David reminds us God is watching. He looks down from heaven on the human race. What's he looking for? To see if there's any who is wise, one who seeks after him. He's investigating the human race, judging lives, scrutinizing hearts, auditing actions, and weighing motives. And what does he find? All have turned aside, and there is no one who does good. It would be a mistake for any of us who have come to the settled conclusion that there is a God to pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, I'm pretty smart. I've figured out that there is a God. I've found my way to him. But that's not the Bible's description. The Bible says, and here in, in Psalm 14, it's pretty clear, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us at one point were foolish. But the mercy of God opened our eyes to see his beauty, to recognize his revelation, to see him in the world around us, to see him in the word that he's given us, to see him in Christ, to see him imaged in our lives, even though it's marred to a great extent. Thank the Lord for his mercy. In verse 5 of chapter 14, he says there that they are in great terror. Who's that? That would be those who say that there is no God. They might live as though they're free. They might live as though their conscience is clean. But you look at those who are described as fools and they are sometimes the most terrified people on earth. 
They have the biggest bodyguards. They have the highest fences around their house. They have the most number of lawyers. Um, they are so constantly looking over their shoulders, even though they say they're secure. Why? Because there's a reality that there is a God. Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them. What an what a amazing picture. Why do they flee when no one's pursuing them? Because they think somebody sees them. They think somebody's aware of what they're doing. They, they, they think that someone has seen where they've gone or what they've done. I think that's what the psalmist means there uh, in verse five when he says they are in great terror. This is why we need God. God is the only one who is able to change our hearts. God is the only one who is able to expose the, the foolishness of our heart. God is the only one who is able to open up our hearts and let us see his beauty and his glory. As the Corinthians says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they might not see the glory of Christ. If you're unbelieving or you're just wrestling with all of this and you're just searching with this and you don't know which way to go, you don't know if it's right, you don't know if it's wrong, I would simply say this to you. Then just, just do this. Just say, God, if you're real, prove it. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I, I mean that in, with all sincerity. God, if you're real, show yourself to me. God, if you're real, take this blinder off my eyes that supposedly is there. God's the only one who's able to change our hearts. And so as we wrap this up, if we think about our view of God, there are some people in this world who are proud atheists. There, there might even be some here this morning. It's a settled conviction that you have that there is no God. And it's evident in the way that you live and the way that you talk and uh, how you think. It's just clear. It's hard to know whether it's sin that leads us to conclude there is no God or our conclusion that there is no God leads us to sin. I don't know which came first, the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken. Um, either way, you end up with your life living out what you tell yourself inside. It's a real precarious position to be in. To be proud in your conviction that there is no God. So what I would say is, have a word with yourself. Have a word with yourself. Self? Is this true? Self? Where might God be if I wanted to look for him? Self? Has God made himself known in any way that I haven't acknowledged or looked for? The Bible is wonderful in its Hope, it says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. Oh, set aside your pride. Set aside your pride and say, God, if you are there, let me find you. Secondly, some are ignorant atheists. And I don't mean that with any sort of disdain. It, just some people have lived their lives with sort of an inkling of God, but they really don't know if God exists. And one of the greatest descriptions of that is in Acts chapter 17, where Paul walks into the city of Corinth, and it's full of idols. 
And he stumbles upon a group of people who have an idol for everything. They did. I, I don't know how many different gods there are in India. Thousands, I'm aware, I understand. But he, he walked into Corinth and he saw all these idols and they were all named, but he, he looked at one and it wasn't named. But it was sort of a, a safeguard. It was just in case we've missed one, we have an idol to an unknown god. They recognized that maybe they were ignorant and they didn't know all the gods and so they had this idol for one. And Paul says, well, let me tell you about that God. It's a God who made the heaven and earth and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. See what he's saying? He says, this God is independent. This God is self-existent. This God doesn't need you, but you need him. And then he goes on and he says, and he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? Why has God placed you in this particular room at this particular time, in this particular city, on this particular island? That you might seek him and perhaps feel your way towards him and find him. God has placed you in this time and this place to give you the best possible opportunity to find him and to know that he is real. He's not actually far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. For we are his offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of a man. Listen, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. He now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a God. He's made himself known. Look for him. He's not far. He wants to be found. Have a word with yourself. Say, God, I don't know everything. I admit that. And I may worship a lot of things, but you I don't worship. Show me if you're real. And then finally, some are practical atheists. You know what a practical atheist is? A practical atheist is one who lives as though there is no God. It doesn't mean they don't necessarily believe that there is no God. They just live as though there is no God. Their, their belief or the conviction of God doesn't influence their behaviors or their actions. The sad reality is, is almost every single one of us at some time in our days is a practical atheist. Whenever I act in a manner inconsistent with the character of God or his will for my life, at that moment, I too become an anonymous atheist. Whenever I do what God forbids, my behavior reveals my self-talk. I have said in my heart, God does not see. God will not judge. God does not care. Have a word with yourself. Remember who it is that you believe in. Oh, there's that song running through my head right now, but I can't remember. I know whom I have believed in and I am persuaded. Do you know who you believed in? Are you persuaded that he exists? Are you convinced that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful? Then shape your self-talk to reflect that belief so it leaks out in your behaviors. Father, thank you for your word today. It really matters what we say to ourselves. Father, you have made it so abundantly clear. You have revealed yourself in numerous ways 
in this world and in our lives so that we are without excuse and we are proved wrong to say to ourselves, there is no God. To say that is really to slap you in the face. To say that is really to say, you are a liar. Father, I pray for every one of us here today that you would open up our thinking and our observations and our awareness of your existence in a greater and greater way, even today. Father, may the reality of you shape the things that we say to ourselves and the behaviors that flow from that conversation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.